the way it is. Now the shadow of a dying tree is ever cool and sweet. Time to grind around a dry and stream just muddies up your feet. So when love's final moments once again are near at hand, time has come for all of us to take a final stand. Well, welcome to the very first broadcast of the Wispy Mop Music Radio podcast series. I am your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. That is me, and I am so tickled on this initial broadcast to have with me not only a, an excellent singer-songwriter and folk-performing musician, an all-around good guy, and also the founding father and the very first president of Frederick Acoustic Music Enterprise, most commonly known as fame, Mr. Rick Hill. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I had no idea you could fit all those people in the living room. It's just absolutely amazing. It is, isn't it? So, Rick, during this podcast, I want to find out more about you pre-Frederick, but also post-Frederick, really, because right now you live where? I live in Monterey, Virginia. Which is where? Uh, Which is, uh, if you get on 81 and head south uh, for about two, three hours uh, and come to Stanton and you take a right on 250 and drive for another hour back up into the mountains, you will run across Monterey, Virginia. Now, when you say drive into the mountains, is Monterey in the mountains or is it in the valley? Uh, Monterey is in the valley. There are a series of ridges uh, and... I, I learned very quickly to count how many you have to go over in order to get there. So you have to go over four ridges uh, in order to get to Monterey. And then there's another ridge, and then you're into West Virginia. Hmm. Four ridges music. <laughs> I like the sound of that. That's got possibilities. It, it sure does. <laughs> so what do you do down there now? So I am a pastor uh, at uh, two uh, small Presbyterian churches. Uh, which is great fun uh, to be able to do that. Uh, I use my music um, in the worship services uh, fairly regularly. Uh, I'm also involved in uh, the, the sort of small music scene that is in Highland County. And uh, so uh, I play with a, with a band called Mountain Air, uh, which does sort of Americana music. I play mostly bass, but occasionally some guitar as well. So. I would imagine you're playing stand-up bass. I'm playing stand-up bass, yes. Yeah. yeah. Good thing you own a van. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've tried the the electric basses, but I don't know. I just, I don't like them. I like acoustic. Well, what might be, um, to make it easier to travel, is a ukulele bass. <laughs> When yes. they're amplified, they do sound like a stand-up oh, bass. They do. They do. I'm amazed at that, and I've, I've played around with that a little bit. Yeah. In fact, I just happened to own one that I never use. Oh, well, there you go. So we may discuss some <laughs> things here. Now, how did you end up getting down there? What was the process? You were, you were a pastor in Hagerstown. I was a pastor in Hagerstown, and I got uh, a phone call, um, and uh, the woman introduced herself, and uh, she said, I don't know if you remember me from 25 years ago, uh, but you preached a sermon out at my church in Stewart's Draft, uh, and I remember that sermon, and I was so moved by it that when we started looking for a pastor here, I thought, yeah, I know who to call. Uh, and so uh, she gave me a call, and, I, you know, I happened to be kind of at a point where, yeah, I was, I was ready to make a move, so... 
Now, how did she track you down? <laughs> the miracle of the internet. Yeah. Fortunately, I have a website. So uh, all you really have to do is uh, Google Rick Hill, uh, and eventually you come across it after you go through all of the car dealers that are out in <laughs> California and all these other places. Uh, but yeah, she was able to track me down through that. And of course, through the Presbyterian system, you can also track pastors. Um, so, so she was able to find me and, um, I, I just happened to be ready to be up and doing something else. And it sounded like it was an intriguing, uh, adventure. Now, how do you on Sunday, if you're the pastor at two churches from time management standpoint, uh, well, so I do a worship service at 9.30 and another worship service at 11.15. Uh, and now they're both the same worship service. When I started, they had a, a tendency to be different, uh, which meant really planning two worship services for a Sunday morning, which was a bit much. Uh, but now I've got them so that we're, we do the same thing in both churches, which is nice uh, to be able to do that. So. Well, looking up Monterey, Virginia on the internet, it says population 147. 1,047. Well, I thought it just said 147. No, no, it's 1,047. Oh, that makes me feel a little bit better. (laughs) But still, that's a fairly small... It is a very small town. um, And um, Highland County is, I believe, if not the least populated, one of the least populated counties east of the Mississippi. Uh, It is the least populated county in Virginia. Uh, so, uh, yeah, if you threw a stick, you probably wouldn't hit anybody. Now, how large of a, of a county is it? I mean, Frederick County is the largest landmass county in the state of Maryland. But in relation to that, I mean, if you got at one end and drove to the other, how long would it take you about? Uh, well, let me think. It might take an hour uh, to drive. So it's fairly expensive. So, uh, yeah, it's a fairly, fairly good sized county. Um, but it's just, it's mostly farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, um, uh, there were a lot of, um, uh, lumber industry sorts of things going on. Um, so harvesting of trees and such, but, um, but mostly it's, it's farmers who are there. Now, how many people in your congregation? Uh, between the two congregations, I've got 80 folks. One has 50, one has 30. Mm-hmm. So, small. Well, as long as they're consistently going. Well, I always tell them that uh, back in New Testament times, when the church was really thriving and flourishing, uh, congregations at that time were maybe two dozen people. So, I, you know, for folks to say, oh, we're just a small congregation, we only have uh, 20 or 25 folks, well, that was a very healthy size in the New Testament times. Uh, and so, you know, I see nothing wrong with that now. In fact, what I find uh, is that the times we are living in today have a tremendous number of parallels to uh, the first century Roman Empire. Really? Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Uh, I talked at one of the churches that I served um, over in Sykesville uh, with a guy who was um, a a Roman Empire scholar. He had done a huge amount of research, had tremendous knowledge about the Roman Empire. And, and he pointed out all of the ways that that time parallels what's going on nowadays. 
that we are really in an empire kind of a time. Um, and the church uh, is being treated in a very similar sort of a fashion to the way it was treated back in the Roman Empire as well. Uh, we haven't quite gotten to the time of severe persecution, which happened uh, a little bit later on in the first century. Uh, but uh, for the most part, the Roman Empire was very tolerant of whatever religion you wanted, as long as you didn't say anything against the fact that the emperor was God. Ah. <laughs> Which is where, of course, Christians and Jews got into tremendous trouble with the it's, Roman Empire. It's on the name on the basis. sign. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, does your music fit into your ministry? Uh, it, it does. I, I, I often say that um, my music and the church is like uh, trying to mix oil and water. Uh, so as long as you keep shaking it, yeah, it stays mixed. Uh, and, and it's nice. And uh, one of the things that I really try and do is to take um, uh, uh, just regular contemporary popular music and find themes that I can use so that I can use that song in the worship service. Uh, so, I, you know, I brought the Grateful Dead. I brought Simon and Garfunkel. I brought, of course, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Kingston Trio, uh, you know, all kinds of secular folk music into the worship service, uh, which some people like and some people don't. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are, there are some folks that uh, uh, just really feel like, no, we need to have traditional hymns, and so let's do this. Uh, so my worship service is a blended service. It uses traditional hymns. Uh, it uses hymns that aren't in the hymnal anymore. Uh, they used to be, but they got taken out for one reason or another. Um, and then it also includes all kinds of um, uh, traditional gospel music, Appalachian gospel music, uh, old-time music, contemporary folk music, all sorts of things. I look for songs uh, that will help me explore whatever the theme is that I have for a worship service. Now, you were when you lived in Frederick County, you were very actively pursuing music. Right. The obviously Frederick County and the surrounding counties have pretty good sized populations. Has that affected your involvement in music down there? The fact that you're in a very small populated county. Well, it hasn't really affected my uh, the amount of time that I spend with music because uh, to me uh, music is everything mm -hmm. I mean, every time somebody says a word every time I, I hear a, a snippet of music here or there it triggers something musical in my brain um, I can think of a song that goes along with that I can think of lyrics that go along with that so that's it, it is going on perpetually uh, but uh, what, it, what has happened is there aren't as many opportunities for me to be actually performing uh, and playing with other folks. Uh, so I play with a group of folks almost every Friday night um, at a place called Big Fish Cidery, uh, which is right in the middle of downtown Monterey. Um, and, and from four to seven, I, you know, we sit around and we we play whatever music we feel like playing, and there are four, five, six, sometimes seven or eight of us um, that do that uh, while people are kind of coming in and uh, grabbing their 
glass of cider and, and kind of unwinding on a Friday. Uh, and that's great fun to be able to do that, but that's really the only opportunity for performing uh, on a regular basis. Uh, there's been some other special things that we've done. I've uh, done a couple of uh, um, uh, fundraisers for the local radio station um, and have performed um, to help raise money for the Highland Arts Center and places like that. So they pop up here and there, but nothing on a regular basis. Are you happy with the amount of music time you're getting? Uh, no, I'm a musician. <laughs> You can never get enough music time. (laughs) Well, speaking of music time, I know you, and many of the original Fame members know you from the time you moved from upstate New York to Frederick. Right. And other than the fact that you recorded your Everything Changes CD, if I'm not mistaken, while you were in New York. Right. How about, how did you start? When When did you start playing guitar or whichever instrument you began with? Well, I began with guitar back when I was 10 years old. Um, there was a, a guy up the street uh, who had an old, uh, what was it? Oh, it was a Harmony. No, no, it was a Stella, I think. And this uh, college student used to come to the elementary school, and he would play a couple of times a year, and he would play mostly Kingston Trio stuff, some uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary stuff. Uh, but I just, I heard that, and I just loved it. Uh, and my mom found out that, I, you know, I wanted to learn how to play guitar, and so she bought this guy's guitar for $10. Uh, and that Christmas, uh, when I was 10, uh, she gave me a guitar, and she got hold of this uh, college student, Dave Braddock, And he came and he gave me guitar lessons for a couple of months. And that was enough to get me going and and set me up. And then he graduated and took off to the Peace Corps. And I've never seen him. And I I would love to find out where Dave Braddock is. But I have no idea. You know, I've tried doing um, internet searches and stuff. But you come up with so many names. And I don't know. It's hard to find that. but, But anyway, but that's what got me started. And... Um, so I started playing, uh, Peter, Paul and Mary stuff. Mostly that's what I was really attracted to, uh, and, uh, learned how to play that. When I got up into high school, there were a couple of other people that, uh, I played music with. Uh, so we started playing some Simon and Garfunkel stuff, some Beatles stuff, um, you know, a variety of, um, I guess that's when Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young came out. And so we were playing some of their music and it was great fun to be able to do that. Uh, then I went off to college and uh, found a couple of folks there who also were playing music and we could do some stuff. And I ran a little coffee house while I was there and, uh, and eventually uh, began doing um, a concert series uh, at the college as well, uh, bringing in some really interesting people. I remember we had Harry Chapin come in. Did you really? Yeah, yeah that was pretty amazing. Um, and uh, trying to think I can't even think of who the other who some other people were but um, as I recall my last year we were supposed to have Gordon Lightfoot uh, but uh, he has some disease and I can't think of what it is uh, but apparently every once in a while it hits and it just knocks him down for a while uh, so he he didn't come there but 
but yeah, it was, it was great. And then when I got out of college, I reconnected with some of my high school buddies and uh, began playing music again. And, and so I've just always, wherever I've gone, I've played music. Um, when we moved down to Virginia, uh, the first time we moved to Louisa, Virginia, and I was a DJ at the radio station there. Uh, and a friend of mine was also looking for a job, and we just happened to need a, another DJ. And so I invited him to come on down, and he became the afternoon drive guy. Uh, and uh, he told me about this hammer dulcimer that he had uh, that was up in his attic. And I just thought, you have a musical instrument up in your attic? really? How can you do that? I said, well, would you mind if I borrowed it? And he said, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, and so I did. I, I borrowed his hammer dulcimer for a few years uh, and learned how to play it. And that was my second instrument. Um, and then um, his son got old enough and his son was interested in learning how to play that thing. So he took his hammer dulcimer back and I thought, well, now I need a hammer dulcimer, so I built one, and so then I had another hammer dulcimer. Uh, and while I was there in um, in Harrisonburg, uh, I got connected up with a Tuesday night music circle, song circle, uh, and in that song circle was a whole variety of music. I mean, there was somebody who liked doing blues, there was somebody else who was doing Celtic music, there was somebody who was doing contemporary folk, and the, the musical knowledge in that group was just tremendous. Uh, and it opened me up to all kinds of possibilities of things um, and introduced me to uh, songwriters and songs that I never would have come across any other way uh, and got me turned on to learning more about the history of the music um, as well as the music itself. Um, and so that is what really got me going on some things. Uh, and I, I picked up my first upright bass uh, while I was in Harrisonburg as well. So now we added another instrument. Uh, and then, uh, and, and again, ex just expanded my, my repertoire and my sort of foundation of music just in huge ways. Uh, so that was that was really exciting, and that's where I also recorded my first CD, which is called, uh, which is called, um, no longer available. Uh, no, actually, there are. I do have copies. Of it. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> see what you want to see is what it's called. Yeah. Now was that on CD or tape? Uh, that was on. Well, actually, I, it was on CD and tape because cassettes were still popular back then, um, and so I I had copies made up on both um but then i don't have any of the tapes anymore i have no idea where where they even went to uh but i i had the cd repackaged uh, and now i've got loads of that <laughs> <laughs> as many people say i have way too many coasters yeah yeah so let, let me back up just a little bit here or actually quite a distance where did you grow up i grew up outside of philadelphia uh, in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Uh, so it's a, a, a nice suburban town uh, and uh, fairly well populated. Uh, and I had uh, seven brothers and sisters and uh, yeah, yeah, a wonderful family life and 
it, you know, it was great, but uh, there was just something that appealed to me about doing the whole music thing. My sister's got piano lessons because my grandmother was quite a musician. Uh, she was a wonderful piano player. Um, and so they, they all got piano lessons and I got guitar lessons. And I often think uh, I would have liked to have piano lessons too, maybe, although I don't think I would have pursued it. Uh, but with the guitar, I, that was just something that I fell in love with and I played it every opportunity. And much easier to carry around. And much easier to carry around. Now, that original Stella guitar. Yeah. That, that was my first guitar as well. Oh. I don't know if yours was as bad as mine. <laughs> and I didn't have anybody who could teach me. So I don't think it ever was correctly tuned. I'm not even sure it could have been correctly tuned. And I am sure by the time it was either thrown into the fireplace or given to someone... It probably had the same strings on it that it came with, <laughs> unless we had broken one. Yeah. But I don't yeah. think we even knew yeah. where to buy guitar strings yeah. back then. Well, I can remember uh, when I, if I broke a guitar string, I would go down to the music store. I'd kind of scrape my coins together and buy a black diamond string. Yeah, black diamond was black the, diamond. yeah. Yep, yep. And so you put on one new string. And, I, you know, I, you didn't worry about the rest of the strings sound dead, and that one sounds bright. It was okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, how long in your musical career did that Stella last? Uh, actually, not very long. Uh, uh, because as I recall, I got a harmony um, probably when I was in high school, I think. Uh, or no, no, it was a K. That's what I had. Uh, so I, I had found a K guitar that somebody was selling, um, and I picked that up. And so that was a step up. Um, and then, uh, when I was, I remember in junior high seeing somebody play a 12 string and I thought, yeah, that's really nice. Um, and then I went to a boy scout camp and there was a guy playing 12 string there, um, which, by the way, is where I learned the Trini Lopez version of If I Had a Hammer. I Had a Hammer, yeah. That song stuck in my brain for some reason, even though I did not play it for probably 20 years um, after I had originally heard it. But I heard this guy play that on a 12-string guitar, and I thought, yeah, I need to get a 12-string. So I scrimped and I saved and I had a little paper route and I was doing some chores for one of the neighbor ladies and, uh, you know, I put my money together and I finally bought uh, my first 12-string guitar, uh, which was pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. Now, is that the Martin I see you play now? No. 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 No, that guitar, uh, I made the mistake of leaving it in the car in the parking lot uh, while I went into work. And when I came out, uh, the temperature in that car was probably 150 degrees. Oh, no. And that guitar was in pretty sad shape. <laughs> and remained that way, probably. And remained that way, yeah. Yeah, so then um, I didn't have a 12-string for a little while. Uh, but when we moved to uh, uh, Richmond, uh, there was a music store there. And Martin had just... Uh, completely redesigned their 12 strings. Uh, I'd played their 12 strings before and I wasn't really impressed with them. They had really thick, clunky necks and they were heavy guitars and 
they just sounded heavy as well. Uh, but they had redesigned the whole thing. And I played one at this music store, and it was amazing what the difference was. The neck was so much thinner. Uh, you could tune it up to standard pitch on a guitar, uh, and uh, the guitar didn't weigh a ton. It was just a really nice, nice guitar. So again, I saved, and I saved, and I saved, and I finally said, yeah, I got enough money. And I bought myself the uh, the Martin 12 that I have now, yeah. Now... Right at the moment, list the instruments you own. <laughs> See if I can do that. <laughs> I mean, uh, brands are not necessarily important other yeah. than to me because I yeah. love, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just a yeah. guitar guy. Uh, so I've got um, a Yamaha uh, six string, which uh, is always the, the, the guitar that I take when I go to um, camps um, and uh, youth events where... Um, I, I allow uh, the kids to play the guitar and stuff. So I, I have a Yamaha, which is really, it's a pretty good sounding guitar for what it is. I, I'm pretty impressed with it. Uh, and then I've got uh, the Martin 12 string. I've got a Gibson J200. Um, I've got, um, I'm trying to think now. You've uh, got a Larrave. A Larrave, yeah. <laughs> and that, uh, I, uh, what did I Oh, I bought that because um, I had to send the Gibson J200 back to the factory because the neck had warped so badly that I couldn't play it. And so I was missing a six-string guitar, so I went and thought, well, you know, you can't be without a six-string. So I went I bought a Larravee. Um, and then um, I've got uh, an old banjo uh, that's probably a little bit over a hundred years old. I think it was uh, probably made in the early 1900s. Uh, so I play that um, claw hammer style. Um, I've got uh, a hammer dulcimer that I built, uh, a harp uh, that I built, although that was built from a kit. I've got a Swedish nickel harpo, which is uh, the, um, the national instrument of Sweden. And nickel harpa is an amazing amazing instrument uh it's a cross between a fiddle and a hurdy-gurdy oh wow yeah so instead of having a handle that you crank you bow the strings like you would a fiddle uh, but you never touch the strings with your hands instead you have keys uh, that you push that will fret the key the strings for you uh, and it's got a really really interesting sound it's sort of a haunting sound uh, because it's got uh, a full set of uh, 13 strings uh, that will um, uh, ring each note that you play. Uh, so sympathetic strings. Um, and, and so every note that you play on the bowed strings, there's a string that will start to ring when that note is played. Um, and so it, it gives the instrument a tremendous amount of sustain. Uh, and it's an instrument that was uh, probably within the last 20 years sort of rediscovered over in Sweden. Um, and they originated in Sweden. And uh, there was a group of people over there that uh, began building them again and really looking at the history of that instrument um, and bringing it back out into public view. Uh, and so, I don't know, at some point in the last 20 years, Sweden made that their national instrument. 
Um, and uh, I went through a phase where I thought, yeah, that'd be cool to have one of those. And, and so I got one. And so it was fun. Um, and then I've got, uh, I think, five or six fiddles. See, I'm listing all these instruments, and my wife is going... <laughs> just shaking her head. I'm yeah, sure. just look behind you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I see this collection here, uh, and then uh, and then today I just bought um, a Gibson uh, L forty eight. The last year or so, I've become intrigued by archtop guitars, and I've thought, you know, I really like the sound of them because it's very different from uh, a regular flat top acoustic. Uh, and so I thought, yeah, I'll try and do this. So I, I sort of kept an eye on some websites and uh, kind of see what was for sale and where it was for sale and thought, okay, yeah, I'll pick up one of those. <laughs> so when you're, and I'm assuming you're in an apartment or a house? No, 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 I'm in a house. Okay. I'm, uh, fortunately, I, I'm in a huge house. <laughs> okay. So I have uh, a room that is the music room. Uh, and then I have a room that is sort of the music library room. Um, and so there are two rooms in the house that are pretty much devoted to, to music. Uh, so we can play in one room and research in the other room. Now, do, how do you go about choosing which instrument at any given time to play? Well, is it moods or? Yeah, yeah, it sort of depends upon what I'm feeling, what I'm up for. Uh, I played uh, for uh, a, um, a barn nativity uh, on Christmas Eve. And uh, they wanted me to play, uh, what was it, Wayfaring Stranger. I know it wasn't that. Now I can't remember what song it was. But I thought, you know, that would sound really good on Nickel Harpa. Oh, I know, it was O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, and so I, I worked that up on O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I said, yeah, this really sounds nice. And O Come, O Come, Emmanuel on Nickel Harper sounds really great. Uh, so I played it for that. So, I, you know, some of it sort of depends upon, well, uh, you know, what's, what's going to fit into the, whatever the mood is of, of the things that I'm doing. Um, the instruments, I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, obviously going to be most familiar on uh, guitar, most comfortable on guitar. Um, but I'll also bring out the hammer dulcimer and, uh, because that works really well on some stuff. Um, uh, I rarely play the hammer dulcimer at the cidery only because it takes up so much space. Uh, and, um, and, and also because you're kind of limited to what keys you can play in. Uh, so I, you know, it, it sort of depends on things. Um, uh, and I, you know, I bring out different instruments at different times and think, that's nice. I like that. <laughs> now let's jump jump back to fame. Okay. How did you come up with the idea and why? Well, when I moved down to Frederick, um, I'd, I'd come from upstate New York, and um, we'd had a Tuesday night song circle, uh, which was really nice. It wasn't real well attended, uh, but a couple of folks who came, came regularly, they were pretty well committed to it. Uh, and it was nice. Um, uh, and I, I just felt very strongly that, uh, music is so important for the community. And so when I got to Frederick, that 
feeling was already there. And I saw that there was already a fair amount of music going on in Frederick. There were a number of venues that were kind of popping up here and there. And I know that you were involved in a bunch of them. You had your fingers in all kinds of things. Uh, and, and I thought, well, I, you know, there ought to be some organization that sort of coordinates all of that, that can help people get connected to it, um, help people um, figure out where the music is, what kind of music is being played, uh, encourage more people to play, encourage uh, venues to have music there. Uh, and, and so I got this idea, and uh, originally... Uh, and I had approached um, the um, uh, uh, the rec commission mm-hmm. about this. Uh, I, th- I came up with this idea of having a concert series that would move around to all of the different parks because there are, are beautiful parks there all are. around Frederick. Um, and it's really, really nice to have all of that. And I thought, yeah, this would make really good music venues. What about if we set up like a concert series and we had... Um, uh, five different parks and we had um, 10 different bands and they would rotate around at all of the different parks each week or whatever the schedule would be. Uh, and so I, I went to the rec folks and asked them about that and they thought, well, that sounds like a good idea, but it also sounds like a huge amount of work and it, and they were all worried that you know it's going to take a huge amount of electricity, which I thought, really? <laughs> An outlet is all you need. Yeah. One outlet. Uh, but they had visions of, uh, you know, generator trucks and, uh, you know, speakers, I don't know, the size of a house or something. I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, but uh, that got kind of dropped. And I began talking uh, with a couple of other folks, one of whom was you and uh, a few other folks. And, and, and we pulled some people together. There was um, uh, Ron Goad and Rod DC and Tommy Wright and you and I, I think that was the original lineup of things. And we sat down, uh, and I remember doing that at the Frederick coffee company one night and just started talking about the music scene in Frederick and what can we do? And is there some way that we can kind of get that a little bit better organized? Uh, you know, how, how can we do something? Uh, and so uh, that idea just sort of gelled out of that and grew out of that. Um, and uh, we, we put together uh, an organization that was uh, to uh, promote and nurture and um, what was the other? Preserve. One? Preserve. Thank you. <laughs> I have diff- I used to have it, so it just rolled off my yeah, tongue. Yeah, well, so did I, but it's been a couple of years since yeah. we've talked about that. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, we, we put this organization together, and we found that there were some other people who thought that that was a great idea, too. And so uh, we started doing this, and uh, we put together an official board and became an official 501c3 and um, had memberships and all of that kind of stuff. It's just really amazing and had a number of very talented people come in and be a part of that as well. Uh, so I, it has grown, and I'm glad to see that it is continuing on. Sam and the crew are doing an, an excellent job, and what has been wonderful for me is to, because part of the problem with organizations when they begin is you have usually a strong leader or 
and it may or may not be the person who found founded the organization. And then maybe someone else, and it's usually a core of one or two people, and sometimes just one. And the drawback to it is everyone wants to attend all the cool stuff, but no one wants to... They'll sit around and chat about it, but they won't necessarily want to be the, the, the troops on the ground. Right. And one of the things that Sam has been able to do, started by, I think, before in your tenure, before you left, was to delegate a little bit better. Yeah. That's a great idea. Do it. Yeah, do it. Yeah. And, and, and hold people to that accountability. Yeah. And so that has been fun for me to watch because I got to the point where it was wonderful because I, I was able to see you and the, the people who kind of founded the organization on a monthly basis and sometimes more often. But it got to the point where I felt like I was not able to contribute anymore time-wise. Mm. And I was afraid that, um, and I had the same feeling for you as well, that people were relying on one or two people to do everything. Yeah. And so I felt I needed to step back to kind of force people to come up and step up, which they have done. Yeah, yeah. And I can remember when you announced, however you did it. <laughs> I don't remember if I was actually at the board meeting because I think I had retired from the board prior right. to that. Yeah. And you said you were going to be leaving, and the, the sheer look of terror, both visually and audibly, you know, it was just kind of like, what would we do? Because you were the fearless leader. Yeah. Yeah. And still are in some respects. Uh, sort of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but, uh, you know, uh, Pete Seeger said something um, that I heard, I don't know, it was, I guess a year or two ago, uh, and he talked about how a, a really good leader should be able to lead the organization and the organization should be able to continue on. Right. Uh, and that is the sign of, of good leadership and good leadership that has been passed on to the next generation. Well, you were wonderful in that, in that, that trite expression of herding cats, <laughs> but you were wonderful in allowing myself, probably mainly, to go off on tangents for only so long <laughs> and then be able to kind of yeah, just pull everyone right back in and, and say, the next item is. Well, one of the things that, that I like to do is to give people enough freedom so that they can be creative. And, uh, you know, if you restrict everybody and say, oh, no, we have to stay to this business and here it is and, and we have to get through this agenda in this amount of time, uh, then people don't feel very creative. And so it is amazing to me the ideas that you begin to hear when you allow the conversation to sort of wander off someplace. And then you begin to see, okay, yeah, now it's gotten way too far off and we have to bring it back, but let's not forget what we said over here because that was a really interesting idea. Uh, and so we came up with, I think, some really good ideas for stuff in those tangents. I, I, I think that that's a wonderful thing. The um, One of the things that, and I wasn't necessarily one who signed on to it originally was the Patsy Klein Memorial. Right. I thought, oh gosh, I don't, you know, that's a lot of money. To... And I was flabbergasted. And Tom Colehep, of course, spearheaded that one. Right. And I was not able to attend the unveiling for some reason. It was probably real estate or something. And I saw the photos and I talked to a few people. And I'm thinking, 
And then what was it? The next day, a newspaper in Europe or something had it on the front page or, or somewhere. In the, and I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah. wow, yeah. I had no idea. Because thinking the way I was thinking, I would have just squashed it. And it taught yeah. me a valuable lesson. It really did that, you know what? Just because you might not think it's a good idea at the time, you have to give it some legs to, to make some sort of progress. If it doesn't work, it's like we tell our kids, if you don't try, you will never succeed. Yeah, that's right. And I was just, one, I, I'm, and I'm so tickled about Tom and his, all his endeavors and how he's just blossomed. It's been wonderful. Yep. And that he's part of an organization that allows him to be a performer without being a real performer. Right. I right. mean, it's just been phenomenal. Well, I think, I think that we saw what his passion was and encouraged him to, to pursue that. Yeah. Another person was Paul Penwell. Right. Right. Yeah. Paul was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I didn't get to know him really well until he was actually uh, dying. I guess it was probably in the last six months of his life mm -hmm. that, that I began to get to know him. Uh, but he was, he was an amazing person uh, and very, very passionate about the music. Uh, so, yeah. He was, uh, I describe him, him as an individual who doesn't believe in the word no when someone says, no, you can't do that. <laughs> and the way he would talk to you, he'd, he'd just look right at you and you would explain and say no. And it was as if you never spoke. Yeah. Yeah. He would just keep on going yeah. and he would, in a innocent sort of way, wear you down. <laughs> the first time he performed at the Frederick Coffee Company, because he had put together enough songs, I thought, and he had his, his Xavier world oh, with yeah. the sunglasses oh, yeah. persona. Yeah. And he, I, I used to call him the Casey Kasem of Frederick County. Right. And I thought, well, you know what? He needs to be out and actually perform rather than just two songs at the open mic. And so I scheduled him. We were going to split the night, two hours. Room was packed. Not so much. Well, I guess it was kind of half and half between our local music community and being a Saturday night, there was a lot of people who'd gone to the restaurants and came for a coffee and a dessert or gone to the movies. And, and I can remember I put him on first and the crowd loved him <laughs> because he was informative. Yeah. He was entertaining to the point of there was a group of four people. I was, I always tend to stand over where the cooler is by the corner of the, the counter. Right. And I'd watch and there was over by the window, the middle window, there was a, um, foursome not music people well when i say not music people they were not part of our group and initially they just once in a while would look over their shoulder and within 20 minutes they were not paying attention to each other anymore <laughs> the two women had turned completely around and just thought he was and i remember fran fran running up to me and she says Todd. i said what fran she goes it's 20 minutes of you know you're, he's supposed to, he's, he's way over time. I said, let him do it. He's having fun. She goes, yeah. but you're supposed to have half of the night. I said, no, I'm enjoying watching him. And that was his enthusiasm. Um, and part of the reason I think the, everyone accepted him and he grew by leaps and bounds just in that, I guess it was really only about a three year period. Yeah. Yeah. It was short time. And he did a wonderful thing for the organization. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He left us a huge legacy. 
which was fantastic. And uh, we, we wanted to be very careful with that and use it in a way that would really honor uh, what Paul was all about. Uh, and so uh, about six months before I, I left, uh, we began talking about uh, the possibility of uh, putting uh, ukuleles into the Frederick Public Schools. Um, and I had heard that there were other school systems that had ukuleles. I remember when I was growing up, we had little metal flutes, and there were flutophones, and there were, I don't know what else, uh, all kinds of things. And I thought, well, I, wouldn't it be cool if we could take some of the uh, Paul Penwell money and put ukuleles into every school in Frederick County? Uh, and so I started counting up the number of schools, having no idea of how many there actually were. It's and, amazing, isn't it? There are a lot of elementary schools in Frederick County. Uh, but that was the goal, was to get um, ukuleles into every school. And uh, I had become a, uh, uh, gone through the teaching artist uh, program um, and got connected up with uh, uh, one of the music teachers. Um, and she and I began kind of brainstorming a little bit about this. Uh, and then um, she connected with another music teacher who had actually put together a ukulele class for his school. Uh, and so then we started talking a little bit more about that and the fame board got involved in it and the thing really just started growing and growing and growing. Uh, and finally, last year, uh, we gave over 400 ukuleles to the Frederick County Public Schools and continue to give more as more elementary schools uh, buy into the program. And what is amazing to me is that 400, and my guess would be that that is more ukuleles than, say, a Macon Music or one of the music stores sell in a year. Oh, I'm sure it is. So yeah. the outreach is just wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And I have been to two performances, one the Maryland um, Folk Festival, right. the second one, uh, which unfortunately wasn't as well attended as the first one was, but that's okay. There's still quite a few people there. But one of the highlights of the evening was the kids from one of the nice. elementary schools who came up and played. Nice. I mean, what a heady experience, well, for us to play on a big stage, for someone in their 20s. And I was watching the kids and thinking, do they have any clue how cool this is? <laughs> you know, it's like watching the, the six-year-olds play baseball out in the outfield, picking daisies and you know, watching the ants crawl along and you're yeah. yelling at them, the ball, the ball. <laughs> but it was, so, you know, just what you started just turned into this wonderful thing. Yeah. And yeah. that, well, I think that it's so important for kids to get turned on to music. And the ukulele is a great instrument to do that. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's small enough so that young children can get their hands onto it. A guitar is a little bit more difficult for a young child, um, but the ukulele is, is wonderful. And nowadays there's just all kinds of resources out there uh, to help you play your ukulele. Uh, and you can play any song that you want to on the ukulele. It's incredible. It's really quite amazing how it inched its way, the ukulele, into contemporary popular music. Yeah. And um, Victoria Vox is a good example. The And for those 
people listening who know who she is, she's an internationally famous ukulele player. She doesn't play traditional ukulele, which was a hurdle for her in the beginning. But here's someone who, traveling to and from her gigs, basically trying to write songs while she drove and trying to play guitar while she's driving, (laughs) which, you know... And, of course, a guitar is big. Yeah. And so she kind of converted over to the ukulele to write songs because she could hold it in her lap and drive at the same time, which is kind of a scary thought. Yeah, I don't even want to think about that. Yeah. (laughs) But it became her main instrument, and she is now internationally famous. Yeah. So. Yeah, Yeah, and I just uh, um, uh, linked her uh, her, uh, rendition of uh, Dire Straits' um, Sultans of Swing. Um, and she and her friend are playing it in a laundromat, and so they call. I have seen that drier yes. straits, yep. which is hysterical. But uh, but I I teach a u- ukulele class down in Monterey, and I, I gave them a couple examples of here are some people who are doing interesting things with a ukulele, and she was one of them. It looks so simple, yeah, and yet you can do so much with it. Oh yeah. Now going back to fame, does. Did it turn out to be, did it meet your expectations? Did it fall short? Did it exceed? I think that it certainly at at least met my expectations. It it probably exceeded my expectations. Uh, uh, To find this group of people who were willing to serve on the board and were willing to do the things, um, and... You know, it wasn't just my ideas. It was their ideas. Uh, They were taking their ideas and they were saying, how about if we try this? How about if we try that? How about we try something else? And all I was doing was saying, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Go for it. But that was part of the, or is part of the reason I think it it blossomed like it did was because as you chatted with several minutes ago, you learned in leadership, you have to allow the multitudes to kind of run with things to yeah. open up, to yeah. come up with ideas, and then kind of rein them back in. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and you don't know uh, what all the possibilities might be out there. And so, uh, you know, I certainly can't come up with all of the ideas myself. I mean, that would be ridiculous to think about that. And so you invite other people in, not just to say, yes, that's a great idea, Rick, but instead to say, well, how how about if we try this or how about if we try that or how about if we try something else? And then I can be the kind of person who helps to organize that and, and helps to make that happen and says, okay, so here are the steps that we need to do in order to make this thing happen and let's get it organized and, and let's, let's make things go. Now, now let's jump into songwriting. All right. Give me a, a close idea of how many songs you have penned. Oh, actually, not very many. I am not a prolific songwriter. Uh, in fact, I'm in a, the midst of a very dry period. I'm hoping this new guitar is going to open things up. Um, and uh, I, so I have maybe written over my entire life maybe 40 or 50 songs. Well, that's a fair number. It's, it's a fair number, but it's not like some people are writing a new song every day or every week and... That is true, and and I think Mac Davis, who used to have a TV show, came out of the uh, Glenn Campbell show and had his own oh, show. Yeah. The who used to in his show, I don't know if you remember it or not, but he in part of the show he'd sit down with his guitar, and he'd have the audience choose the subject, and he would write and perform a song <laughs> extemporaneously. 
which I always thought was completely clever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I've seen, I think Willie Porter does that, or used to do it in some of his performances. Mm. And what I realized many, many years later is they've pretty much already come up with the chord structure in the tempo. (laughs) So what they're really doing is just taking the idea and fitting it into what they, it's not completely made up, but it sure does please the audience. (laughs) Yeah. So 40 or 50 is a good number though. Well, I, yeah, I, I mean, it does. All right. What I find is uh, that uh, and I I was talking with my wife about this the other day and uh, she was saying, you know, your songs all do sound different. There are some songwriters who just, and uh, who was it? Uh, oh, I guess she'd heard an interview with James Taylor who said he's singing the same six songs over and over and yeah. over again. Uh, and she said, but your songs aren't like that. They're all different. And, I say, and I'm thinking, well, maybe that's why I haven't been able to write anything is because I, I, I haven't come up with a different sound. You haven't found a hallway with enough doors yet to right. walk through. Right. That's all it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we keep on working on things. I'm a firm believer that every song we as songwriters write isn't necessarily a good song. No. No. And I think what is not really a problem necessarily, but a hurdle for many songwriters is they write 30 songs and they start performing those 30 songs. Mm might only be three that are really songs that someone would want to listen to. Yeah. But they kind of, it's like, it's like walking through a field of tall grass and instead of finding the animal path to make it easy that you just forge ahead and crush the entire field. <laughs> the, um, so to me, quanti- quality is better than quantity. Although from all these songwriters I, I read about and, and listen to when I have hear interviews is you don't get the quality without the quantity, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. But that quantity doesn't mean hundreds. Right. I mean, there's probably Graham Nash, I was rereading an article and he was quite amazed that his most popular songs were the ones that were the simplest that were written on kind of a whim. Hmm. And I've also read a lot of other songwriters who say that it's when I relax and allow my brain to just flow is when I write the best songs instead of sitting down saying, I need to write a song about a river. <laughs> yeah. So in your, I only have recordings from Everything Changes. Oh, well, we ought to get you other ones. Well, the, I did go on your website and you have newer songs on there or at least songs that I had not heard before. And unfortunately, because I have an older iMac and my processor doesn't fit with the new algorithms or something <laughs> when i go to press on them nothing happens oh. so it's i think it's my computer not your website <laughs> the now on the everything changes cd grapes are on the vine which we opened the show with that's right. one of yours right yes now how did you go about writing that uh well i wanted something that was uh had somewhat of a civil war kind of a feel to it uh, and I, I, as I recall, it started out with uh, um, this whole notion of the shadow of a dying tree is never cool and sweet, and the ground around a drying stream just muddies up your feet. Uh, so when love's final moments once again are near at hand, the time has come for all of us to take our final stand. And I think that that part of the song actually came first, and that's really the bridge to the song. Well, and it's also poetry. Yeah, 
Yeah. Very nice poetry, actually. Um, and uh, and then I, I got kind of this, I, I wanted a really driving rhythm. And I, I, I mean, it, it's a difficult song to play because um, the chord changes can be really fast in it. Um, and for the uh, parts in between the verses, um, I'm using chords all up and down the neck. And so I, they're, and they're really moving right along there. Uh, but that's kind of where I wanted that, that song to go. Uh, and it was, it was kind of a neat little twist on things uh, about uh, you know, incorporating this idea of uh, the imagery of communion. So you've got the bread and the wine, um, but then putting it out on the battlefield. And um, he's bringing his buddy in who's been shot, uh, and he's wounded. And, um, and he brings his buddy in uh, to the woman who is supposed to marry him. And, I, you know, uh, just bringing all of those pieces in together uh, and just kind of seeing where all of that goes, uh, especially in the whole larger concept of what is war. Now, did you plan it to be that way, or did it morph on its own after you came up with a couple of lines? Uh, songs always tend to morph. And it's like the song takes on a life of its own, and it goes in its own direction. Um, I remember writing a song about um, Isaac um, and Abraham, and Isaac is Abraham's son, and Abraham had waited um, 90 years to finally get this son, and the son ended up being uh, somewhat of a handful for him, I think. Um, and so I, I thought, well, let's explore this a little bit about, you know, kind of see, you know, what's going on with this, um, because Abraham is is called by God to sacrifice his son, and I thought, well, that's kind of weird. Let's see where that goes, too. And, uh, and so I explored that and the song just took off in this other direction, um, and, um, allowed me to, to, to kind of wrap the song in a strange sort of a way, um, so that, uh, you're left not knowing whether Abraham is actually going to kill his son or not. Uh, and it just kind of leaves that hanging in the air there and it's this whole you know the question about who are you really going to believe are you going to believe the popular gods or are you going to believe the unpopular god and which one are you going to do uh, you know um, and so that was kind of cool to be able to explore that but I, that seems to happen fairly regularly when i'm writing songs they just wander off in strange directions now do you write when you're, I guess, there's nothing else going on? Or do you sit down and say, I'm going to write a song? Or do you have a thought and go, oh, I need to jot that down somewhere? <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 it's hard to answer that question because I haven't written, really written anything in a couple of years. Um, although I did, um, a few years back, uh, write a song uh that just sort of popped into my head and I began playing with an alternate tuning on the guitar and just kind of seeing where that went. Uh, and so th as I do this, the words kind of appear. Uh, one of the things that I do uh, 
it probably sounds to an outsider like I'm singing in tongues, uh, but um, I try and get um, consonants and vowels that um, have a certain kind of a rhythm and a roll to them. Uh, I think that's really important. Uh, I, I've been sort of thinking a lot about this, that uh, what I think makes a song really great is when the consonants and the vowels flow in a certain kind of a way, and there's a smoothness to that flow. Uh, I've heard songs where it sounds very jagged, um, and it's not a pleasing sound. And I find that when I'm also reading, over the last uh, 10 years, I've decided to do all of the reading that I should have done in high school. Uh, and I got really turned on to F. Scott Fitzgerald. And when he writes, his words just flow in really beautiful kind of ways. Uh, and I thought, yeah, and I think that's what happens with music as well, that you find somebody like uh, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, uh, Paul Simon, uh, people like that, and there's just something about the actual sounds of the words um, and how they join together uh, that is so important and um, that really makes the song easy to hear. Well, the as I tell people when when I perform a lot, you know, this song is my sofa's favorite song. <laughs> and the, when I, when I used to run the open mics and, and when I attend open mics, not always as a performer, just to sit and, and listen, I am struck by the performers who sing an original tune. It's almost as if that whole, the, remember the old um, little, toy we had where you had a star-shaped piece of wood and a round one and a square okay. one yep. and you had to put the square peg in yep. the round hole and it didn't work yeah and it just seems to me that so many um people who want to be songwriters just want to cram that thing in there it's right. like you're they're singing along and they've got their cadence down and everything's running and all of a sudden there's a two-word syllable two-syllable word where it should have been a one and, and so they do that little trip yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you can use it for emphasis. Sometimes it works really, really well, but then it's also that to get to yeah. the end of the line before the you know. The, the yep, yep. That's why uh, whenever I'm writing, I have a thesaurus and a rhyming dictionary sitting in front of me uh, because I run into those problems. Yeah, and that's when you need to expand. Um, somebody was telling me that. I, you know, nowadays the English language, I don't know, has been narrowed down to, I don't know, how many thousand words. Uh, but 200 years ago, the English language had 10,000 words that were commonly used. And you read the old literature and you run across these words that are great words. Mm -hmm. uh, and I found that I, you know, what I try and do is I try and use unusual words uh, in in my songs so that they're not words that are commonly heard every day uh, but instead they're words that do reflect some pull some from the past um, 
I was reading Mark Twain, and Mark Twain has, I can't even remember what story it is, but I think that he used a thesaurus, and he used every word in that thesaurus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was amazed at his knowledge of the language and how many words he could use to describe all of these different things that were going on. Just fascinating. And I think, yeah, songwriters need to be able to do that. They need to find alternate words, not just, oh, that's a beautiful sunrise. But, you know, what's another word for beautiful? What's another word for sunrise? Correct. All of those kind of things. So that uh, you get a little bit more creative energy going on in the song. A, a gentleman I went to high school with, he, we were on the track team together. Very nice man. We reconnected at my 50th high school reunion two years ago. And what I did not realize, one, he's a jazz pianist. Who knew? <laughs> and he was the an English professor at Emerson College in Boston. And he is a published author. And I don't remember if he told me about this book or I happened upon it on Amazon or somewhere. It's called The Sugar Season. It's written by Douglas Wynott. And so I purchased it for Carol because she likes books like that. Mm -hmm. And she hasn't read it in a year, but that's okay. You know, sometimes you get a book, you set it down, it either gets covered over or you just, you're not in the mood to start that new one or whatever it is. So I ran out of a book last week and I figured I'll, I'll read that one. And he writes in a very simple way that was difficult for me to get to the end of the first chapter. Because I read so many novels where, like you said, the words just flow. Yeah. Whether they use these wonderful adjectives or whatever it is, it's just how they put the, the, the sentence, sentences together and the paragraphs together. And he was basically describing what he saw in a literal sort of way. Hmm. It's like you were just saying, you know, it's a beautiful sunrise, but you can say it in another way. Right. Or there's a multitude of ways of saying it. And he was saying it, it's a beautiful sunrise. <laughs> I walked up to the top of the hill. It was a beautiful, you know, yeah. and it's taken me a long time. When I say long time, it's taken me a week or more to get into the book where I feel comfortable reading that. Hmm. But it is not something that I would read for entertainment or I have to kind of push myself into it and say, this is good information. I may never use it, but it's good information. That, it's information I did not know prior to now. Yeah. So yeah. I tend to agree with you as far as songwriting. Yeah. Now on that, going back to that Everything Changes CD, the um, Honeymoon Suite, right. which is an instrumental. Right. How do you come up with an instrumental like that? And that's your own composition, I'm assuming. No, no, actually those are three uh, traditional ah. tunes. Uh, when I was up in New York, I played with um, a group of folks who informally got together every week um, at this uh, neat little sort of combination grocery store and cafe. Um, and uh, one of the uh, people who was a part of that group uh, played uh, the flutes. And so he would take three tunes and he would put them together and the tunes would have some similarities so that they kind of connected together. And so this was just a set of one of his, uh, that he had put the, the, the three tunes together. Uh, and I thought that they were really neat, and I did a little bit of arranging with them. Uh, 
And on that, I also played two hammer dulcimers. Oh. So um, we laid down the track for the one. And then when I was practicing, I I began thinking, there's kind of a cool harmony that could go in with this. Um, And it's really tricky to do that on the hammer dulcimer because both parts, the hammers have to hit at exactly the same time. And so I don't even remember how many takes we had to do in order for me to get it so that um, the, the main note and the harmony note were hitting at exactly the same time. And so the rhythm had to be exact throughout the whole piece. I mean, it was, it was amazing to play it. Well, that brings up um, another question I have for you. I thought about this when I was driving back from the office this afternoon. Do you find recording in a studio fun and relaxing or stressful and you love it but hate it? Uh, yeah, I, uh, it's somewhat stressful, uh, but what I also try and do, and I, and I encourage anybody who's thinking about recording, um, make sure that you know ahead of time what you're going to do mm-hmm. uh, and exactly how you are going to do it. Uh, because if you get in there and you start trying to be creative and, well, let's try this or let's try that, let's try something else, then you start chewing up a lot of studio time doing it. Um, and so when I went in there, I knew exactly what song I was going to do. I knew pretty much uh, what the parts were going to be, what instruments were going to be on it. And so I could tell my engineer, this is what I want to do, and that's what we did. Yeah, and a song like... Um Put it back in the circle again. And again, is that one of yours? Yes. Okay. Was that recorded live with everyone in the room, or is that tracked? Uh, or maybe no, a combination? I think, I think that we did that live with everybody in the room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I like doing that if I can, uh, because uh, it just it has some energy to it that, that way. Uh, I know that on that CD, um, there was a, a woman who is absolutely gorgeous voice, um, Sarah Sipperly sings on it. And she had never sung in the studio before. And so uh, we brought her in and I had rehearsed the parts with her and, and we were going through just fine. Um, but she was singing um, in a booth by herself. We had um, just wanted to do that track separate. And she was singing very softly and as a result, she was going flat mm-hmm. all the time. And we thought, what is going on here? How can we get this right? And so finally, uh, we told her, don't think of yourself singing in a booth. Thinking of yourself singing in a large room. And fill your lungs with air and let your voice come out full. And when she did that, she hit every single mm-hmm. note right square on. Gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. I, I heard from someone, I think it was the, only the second or third time I'd ever recorded. And he said, you know, I've heard you sing before. You sing much better than you're singing right now. I said, well, I'm feeling very restricted here, like someone's choking me. He said, why? Well, what I learned was, one, it was very cold in there because they have a lot of computer and things like that. I hadn't worn the, the appropriate clothing. So you have to dress to make sure you're warm enough. You can always take it off if it gets warm. And the other thing I, I, I learned was 
you have to choose an engineer who you feel comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. What he would do is you'd start to sing. You go, okay, do it again. <laughs> because you'd either be slightly flat or slightly sharp or something like that. And so after the third or fourth take, I am so scared. It's like when your dad walks in after, you know, <laughs> and you're walking on eggshells. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, uh, and it is a learned experience. It, it's not, it's like the first time we sing live in front of people. Yeah. We could have sung that song at home a thousand times. We know it by heart. It just flows out of us and we get up in front of 10 people and we can't remember the chords in the second yep. verse. Yep, yep, yep. That happens all the time. So it's yeah. that, that example of uh, going back to almost like writing quantity in order to get quality. Yeah. It's the, um, the learned experience of being I don't know about you, but I am always nervous going on stage, especially in front of other musicians. But I've learned to control it. Yeah. The one thing, and we need to end here because I don't want to take your entire day <laughs> and evening, is the one thing that I've always been amazed by is how comfortable you seem on stage, regardless of the venue, and whether you're doing one song or an hour's worth of songs. Do you get nervous or have you kind of grown out of that over time? I'm, I'm always very nervous. But one of the things, I attended a workshop that was done by uh, a band called Trapezoid. Paul Reisler was in charge of that. Uh, and what they said was, when you walk out on the stage, claim the stage. That's your space. And you say something or you do something that lets the audience know this is your stage and now you are in control of it. And so I may be terribly nervous inside. And one of the things that I found just kind of breaks things a little bit is to just walk out and say, how's everybody doing? Mm -hmm. Which you always do. Which I do. And that breaks everything, you know, and people say, hey, yay, you know, we're doing great, oh, fantastic. And then, uh, you know, I can go from there. But I have to go out and I have to claim that space. It, I equate it to um, going out in the yard during the fall and grabbing the leaves. Because especially if you're in a large room where no one knows who you are or, or maybe just a few, and the things you say, first of all, the way you look, when you walk on, um, but the first few things you say, if you get a good response, you've got the crowd. Yeah, eighty yeah. percent of them will allow you the first song. Yep. yep. If that first song is good, eighty-five will let you have the second song, and it'll just kind of grow from there. Yeah. yeah. So, but you do a, a wonderful job of it, and I I want to thank you so much thank for. There's a few things that I was reading a, or I was listening to a podcast earlier today on how to do a podcast. <laughs> and the one thing the fellow said was, don't be surprised if your first podcast has problems, <laughs> of which the, the people listening don't realize that we were, what, yeah, we eight were minutes in yeah. before I realized yeah. I had not hit the record button. So we had to start all over again. The, uh, and there's a few things I've learned, but this has been, I, I know so much more about you. And the people listening know so much more about you. And we do miss you here in Frederick. I hope you realize Thank that. You. Thank you. And you will forever be the Pete Seeger of Frederick County. <laughs> so what we're going to do now is let the people hear you um, leaving the show here with a little music. 
Put it back in the circle again by Thank Rick you. Hill. Thank you.